I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. And we're back again for what is going to be a little three-part series. Uh, <laughs> I won't scare you too much about it, what exactly it is, but it's you can see it in the title. It's textual criticism. And this may be something that you know a little bit about, you may know nothing about, you may have not even ever heard of textual criticism, and that's okay. Don't worry about it. But you'll you'll realize that this is actually something that's pretty important to know about. And it's something that a lot of people know just a tiny bit about, and they shy away from learning anything more about it because they think it's something bad. Okay? So we're going to talk about it for three episodes because it's something that's important and we should never shy away from learning about the Bible and how we treat the Bible and what we know about the Bible. So before I get into that, just a reminder that we are going to do a Q&A episode coming up. I mentioned it in the last episode that if you have any questions, anything that you want to know more about, some topic that we touched on, or I mentioned something and you just want to know more about it, let me know. We can put that into the Q&A episode. But also, I'm already starting to think about next year, next season, and If I do another season, which I'm not 100% sure, but I'm thinking probably, uh, it would start up again in the fall, in September-ish, and go through the school year again. And I think I know what the theme would be, but the Q&A questions that I got last year actually really helped to contribute to the theme for this year's podcast. So let me know if there's questions that you have, thoughts that you have about things. It helps me to kind of fine tune what I talk about and what direction to take things in because, you know, one topic can go in five directions. So it really helps. Your input really helps. So you can help with topics for the Q&A, but even if they don't fit into that, it gives me an idea of what you guys are thinking and what kinds of questions you have and what kinds of directions I can take things in. So don't, don't be, don't be shy. Send me an email. Again, it's always in the show notes with all your mind podcast at gmail.com. Use it. Let me know. All right. Okay. Let's dig into what we have for today. Textual criticism and should I be scared? So spoiler alert. No, you should not be scared of textual criticism. But this is another one of those episodes that you might look at the title and think, oh, why would I want to listen to this? And the reason is, so that you can be informed and not ignorant. That's why. So I, I, I looked up some facts because I was thinking, are we ignorant? Are we uninformed? And yeah, yeah, basically. So here's some interesting facts. Did you know that it's generally accepted that Christians are less informed about the Bible than in previous generations? Because 60% of Americans, and I'm just going to do Americans here, 60% of Americans say they're Christians but only 10% of Americans say they've read the whole Bible. So we not only don't know much about the Bible, most people don't bother to find out by actually reading it. So don't be one of those statistics. Read your Bible, learn about the Bible. 
So something that you might not think you should know about, but you should, is textual criticism. And when I say that phrase, (laughs) I tend to think that leadership of evangelical churches will give what I call, what we call in our household, a disgust face. Now, a disgust face, what is a disgust face? Uh, It's a phrase. (laughs) We came up with this term, uh, my husband and I, when (laughs) he used to be a really picky eater. Like he was just unfamiliar with a lot of food and he just ate a very Pennsylvania diet, uh, not a lot of variety. And so when I came onto the scene, I was like, hey, let's eat this, let's eat that. And he had to try a whole bunch of new foods that he'd never tried or never had homemade, like he'd had it in a restaurant before. But one of the things that he started to do when he would try these new foods is that he would kind of pucker up his face a bit, kind of like in anticipation of not liking it. And he would take a bite of something and give this like puckered up look and we would call it the disgust face. And then he would announce the verdict of whatever he was eating. But no matter whether he liked it or not, he would start off with this disgust face. And it's the the picture that I have when I think of somebody prejudging something is the disgust face because his body, his body, his taste buds were willing to reject whatever the food was before he even tasted it. Uh, and then he would change his mind most of the time and be like, this is awesome. This is delicious. But his body was like primed to reject it. That's how I think the evangelical world often feels towards textual criticism and academics around the Bible. They're primed to reject it. They're prejudiced against it. And it comes out kind of automatically. So we're going to talk about textual criticism so that you don't have to be that way. We're going to talk about it in the ways that it's good. We'll mention the ways that it's not so good. We'll get there. I think we're going to do that in the next episode. But this one, we're going to talk about what is it and what does it have to do with us? All right. So textual criticism is a branch of science And it's related to a lot of different sciences that you might be just as foggy in understanding about, such as, and maybe if you're a nerd like me, you might have known this one before, numismatics. That's the study of coins and the inscriptions on them. There's diplomatics, which is the study of official documents like treaties and charters. And then there's higher criticism, which debates the authenticity of a document or a literary work like Did Shakespeare really write Twelfth Night or Venus and Adonis? And then they also debate interpretation, such as, is the color red in Shakespeare's works always representative of an evil motive? That is an example of higher criticism. So there's a couple of other ones that are very similar. So numismatics, diplomatics, higher criticism. These are things that kind of revolve around literature and archaeology and things that help us to understand history through either writing or artifacts. So I was trying to find a good definition of textual criticism, and I'm going to borrow an idea that explains it pretty well. In the preface to my textual criticism book, the author talks about how the average person usually runs into textual criticism when they read a footnote in their Bible, and it says something like, some ancient manuscripts read, or the best manuscripts read, or the Septuagint and the Vulgate say X, Y, or Z. 
And that means, what that means is there are different manuscripts of the same book of the Bible that don't have the exact same wording in certain passages. And textual criticism is the study of these differences and trying to figure out what to do with them. It's pretty basic. And it's nothing weird. I mean, if you have even, say, a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, written by Harper Lee, and one edition of the book has it written that Scout, the little girl in the book, had red hair, and then another edition of the book has, she has blonde hair, you're going to try and figure out which one is the original, and why did one book say red and one book say blonde? You kind of want to know, why is there a difference there? Was it just a typo? Was the copy editor daydreaming about their blonde little girl and wrote it in blonde when it's supposed to be red? Um, Was there some kind of social agenda that somebody wanted her to be blonde because that was more typical, stereotypical American? So you, you see how theories can form about the reasoning behind a change or a difference in a document? The same thing happens with the Bible. So textual criticism isn't about coming up with theories necessarily. It's figuring out what differences are there actually and what do we do about them and why are they there? So if you remember from some previous episodes, there have been a whole lot of documents that have been discovered or made public in the last 150 years, both of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. Even if you only talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, those are the ones found in caves around the Dead Sea in the 1940s and 1950s, even if you just talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they give us all of the oldest versions of the Old Testament that we have by a thousand years, (laughs) okay? So they're a big deal. So that means that the oldest Hebrew Bible manuscripts that we have are from about 1080. The Dead Sea Scrolls are from around 0 AD or 100 BC or 200 BC. That's about the range that we have for them. So if those older manuscripts that were found at the Dead Sea, if they have tiny differences here and there from the much newer 1080 manuscripts that we have, why? Why are they different? Textual critics are the people that get the job of trying to decide which document is more reliable and why. Archaeologists find these documents, and then they're, well, (laughs) in the case of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was a shepherd boy that found some of them. But then after that, archaeologists started digs. But okay, so archaeologists or shepherds or adventurers, whatever, um, are the ones that usually find these documents. And then they're then owned by museums or foundations. But textual critics are the people that look at the documents and the handwriting and the materials used and compare it to other manuscripts of the same texts and try and figure out, okay, is this the same? Is that the same? Okay, here they have a different paragraph division, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. I hope you're feeling very comfortable so far with the topic of textual criticism because so far it's not scary at all, right? But the reason the whole topic can end up feeling a little unsettling and even scary is because it brings into question some really big picture topics like the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, the sovereignty of God, the reliability of the Bible, even our understanding of the Bible, and on and on. 
So we have to have a way of thinking about textual criticism. And here's my thinking. You know the saying, nobody wants to know how the sausage is made. (laughs) Do you know that one? It basically is, you know, you might love sausage and want to eat sausage, but you sure don't want to watch the process and know exactly how it's made a lot of the time, right? It can gross you out. So this is something I have to remember a lot of the time. I end up going into detail when trying to explain something to somebody. And most people don't want to know the hundred details of how I made or did something or learned something. They just want to know the end result. You don't want to know how sewage is processed or how your hamburger was made, starting with a cow. And you don't tell a kid who loves ponies where glue comes from even though they love to use it in their crafts, right? Knowing the background and details of how something is made often makes people disgusted or kind of reduces the value of that thing in in their perception, in in their opinion. So when you know that a diamond is manufactured rather than mined, does that make it less valuable? It depends on what you want. And it depends on your perception of whether it needs to be mined, if it's more important where it comes from. So the same thing can often be true of the Bible. When we learn the details of the humanity involved in its writing, editing, and what we call the transmission, that's just how it was delivered to us, we can sometimes start to get disgusted by the Bible itself. We, when we hear the human side, We tend to think that the Bible is much less divine, much less inspired, and much less reliable than we used to think. Now, that's just one perspective that's possible, but it's not at all necessary, okay? The evangelical church can often try to avoid thinking about textual criticism, and they avoid academic discussions about the Bible because it's a whole can of worms. It is. I'll be honest about that one. It is a can of worms, and it needs information and education, and a lot of work to understand. And so when you only scratch the surface of it, it looks scary, it looks overwhelming, and you back off. So you kind of have to dive deep for a minute and figure out what's going on, and then you're okay, but you have to be patient with it. So here's the thing. Textual criticism is probably more important than ever when there are so many more ancient manuscripts that have been discovered or made public and can be used to inform our English translations of the Bible. And it's not the job nor the goal of textual criticism to rip apart the Bible and try to divide it or prove it unreliable or even to find problems. That's not the job. The job of textual criticism is to find the most accurate and reliable manuscripts. And it can, if you let it, give you more confidence in the Bible than you had before. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the different topics, the different issues that textual criticism deals with. What differences are there in the Bible? What differences are there between different manuscripts that textual criticism finds? Okay? A big one, a really big one, is just spelling differences. Big whoop, right? You'll often see this in footnotes in your Bible that certain manuscripts spell a guy's name differently, or in Kings it spells a guy's name this way, but in Chronicles it's spelled a different way. So an example, this happens with a people group named the Dodanim. In Genesis 10, there's a people called the Dodanim. 
but in 1 Chronicles 1, it calls them the Rodanim. Dodanim and Rodanim. Just one letter difference in English and one letter difference in Hebrew. And the thing is that R and D in Hebrew look incredibly similar. So it might have been a copying mistake because one of those groups we never hear of ever again. So it's a question, it's a guess that one of them might have just been a spelling mistake, a copying mistake. A similar one is when homophones are switched. So words that sound the same but are spelled differently or mean something different. An example in English is the word bear, B-E-A-R, right? The animal that can roam forests, eat honey, and maul people. That word can be spelled in more than one way, though, right? So if somebody is talking and says, my bear couldn't bear the bear logs, (laughs) my bear couldn't bear the bear logs, we have three different words in there, bear, bear, and bear. They're spelled two different ways. And there's three different meanings. So having a word like that is very easy to spell it the wrong way. If, say, somebody is dictating to a scribe, he might spell a word the wrong way if he loses track of the context, right? If I don't ask again, which bear did you say? Or what, wait, can you repeat the sentence? I might just guess at which way to write down bear, So we would definitely understand if someone was writing that down and wrote one of those bears the wrong way. Uh, Here's a big one. This is is awful. And we'll talk about this again in the next episode. But you may be surprised to learn that there was no punctuation, no upper lower case, and no spaces between words in Koine Greek. It is a nightmare to look at. I hate it. I feel like you have to, okay... If you want to learn Koine Greek, which is New Testament Greek, that's one deal. But then if you want to actually look at the documents, (laughs) the manuscripts that we have, it's a whole different ballgame. You can barely read it because they also use abbreviations. It's all uppercase. There's no spaces. That also means that they will stop a word in the middle of a word and put the rest of the word on the next line. And there's no dashes to tell you that that's a connected word. It's awful. Okay, so it's just one long line of letters across a page, and then it starts again on the next line. Copying that down to make a new Bible would be very hard. So sometimes letters would be skipped as scribes and editors might be copying something down. Okay, so hopefully by now you're a little bit bored thinking, is that all there is to the idea of textual criticism? If so, yay, you're getting the right feeling because yeah, That's a lot of what it is, is like proofreading problems. The Bible is amazingly accurate. And I don't use that word very much. Ask my friends. (laughs) I do not use the word amazing. The Bible is amazingly accurate. It's only when we let fear of huge inaccuracies make us defensive and think, let's not check. Let's not look too hard. The Bible says that it's perfect and accurate. It must be a sin to look at it too closely. It feels like you're questioning the Bible. It feels like you're calling it wrong to its face when you're looking for accuracy. No, it's kind of like checking your work and being a diligent like student, you know, like the Bereans, the people that Paul congratulated in Acts 17 for checking the Bible to see if what he was saying was accurate. 
So I don't think we need to be scared of checking the Bible to make sure it's accurate. Paul was all for that of other people in the New Testament. Um, Some other problems. Other problems include writing a letter twice instead of once. So say in the word pomegranate. Are there two M's or is there just one M? If you're a French speaker, you might want to put in two M's because the word palm in French has two M's and it's a fruit. I think that's apple. But if you're an English speaker, you might be like pomegranate. Duh, there's one M. But that's something that would sometimes happen. Uh, writing a letter twice instead of once, combining words when they should have been two separate words, or dividing a word that should have stayed one word, uh, such as applesauce. Um, If you accidentally separated it out, so it was applesauce instead of one word, applesauce. Most of the inaccuracies or textual criticism issues in the Bible are basically proofreading problems. But it's the job of the textual critic to find out, was this a mistake? And if there are two manuscripts that have different things, which one has the mistake and which one is accurate, right? Because if applesauce is in the Bible and it's separated out into apple and sauce, we might think, oh, maybe it's not applesauce. Maybe it's a kind of sauce made out of apples and they're trying to make it specifically not applesauce, the ground up apples that we know it, you know? So you don't want to assume you know the meaning of a word. You want to find out, did they mean something different? And that's the job of the textual critic. Which manuscript is accurate? And what specific meaning is it giving here? Are we trying to get at a different meaning than what we would assume? Or was that just a mistake? Okay. So spelling and copying problems in one way or another make up a bulk of the issues in the Bible. There are some other little changes here and there that scribes made because of how language changed. And this is one of my favorite examples of textual criticism, because I think it's a great way (laughs) to change the Bible. And it's totally okay with me. So listen to this. So I think this is a great example of where where scribes made a change, a deliberate change to the Bible. And you might think, what? What do they do? Well, Hold on. Listen to this. Okay. Genesis 18.22. This is out of the ESV, just because that's what first popped up on my phone. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Okay. That's the whole verse. Let me read it again. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And that phrase, still stood before the Lord, uh, it's a pretty common phrase. And when I imagine that phrase, I just imagine a person waiting, kind of being at attention, waiting before the Lord, still stood before the Lord. Now, here's a textual criticism issue. In some early manuscripts, they had a saying, and God remained standing before Abraham. It was kind of switched around, right? And God remained standing before Abraham. But here's the thing. The phrase to stand before someone kind of changed in connotation over time. Originally, when the manuscript was first written, it just meant that somebody stood there, right? There was no special connotation to it. But later on, the phrase to stand before somebody had the connotation to be um, subservient to them, to be under their authority. 
So scribes changed that phrase to say that Abraham stood before the Lord, not the other way around, to make sure it wasn't like God was being subservient to Abraham. You get my drift? Do you, do you see what was happening? The language changed, and there was now a connotation to that phrase that was blasphemous. And they didn't want to demean God or be disrespectful to God or to make it look like Abraham was the boss in the relationship when that clearly wasn't the case. So scribes switched around that phrase to be appropriate to the language of the time. Because even in biblical times, language changed. It's a normal process. It would be very similar to a Bible translation being written in the 1920s. And it might describe the Virgin Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, being gay. And a modern reader would look at that and we would laugh and say, no, she wasn't gay. She was happy to see Elizabeth. She was very... She was very excited to see Elizabeth, but we wouldn't say gay because that has a different connotation today, right? And so we would change the language to make sure that the meaning was clear and not confusing, right? So we're okay with updating language in modern English, and up to a certain time period, Hebrew scribes did the same thing. So at a certain point, Hebrew scribes did kind of lock in the Bible and say, okay, no more changes, and they came up with systems to like mark things on the margins of pages to say, I don't agree with this, but I'm leaving it in there because that's what was written. But after a certain point, Hebrew scribes stopped editing the Bible, stopped changing things for connotation or for better wording or anything like that. So there was a point at which there were no more changes allowed to the Bible. That did happen. But okay, so let's get back to what we were talking about earlier why is it still so difficult for evangelical and mainline churches to talk about textual criticism? What are the issues at stake? Well, the number one thing that comes up is fear. There's an inherent fear when we focus on the human participants in the making of the Bible. We tend to get nervous that if we know too much about who was involved in writing the Bible and how they did it, that we'll feel that God was no longer sovereign in the production of the Bible or how it was transmitted or just the ideas. And we also have Bible verses. This is a big deal. We also have Bible verses that if we take them very literally, we don't know how to relate them to reality. Okay. So here's a big one. Matthew 5.18. This gets interesting to read in several different translations. It kind of proves the point for me, but we'll go through it. Okay. Matthew 5.18. This is the New King James. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Here it is in the NIV. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Uh, This is just such a fascinating example to me of how we can take the Bible extremely literally and then be unable to use it practically. What the verse is saying in a kind of idiomatic way is that the law, the word of God, will not be going anywhere until the end of the world. What is specifically said, what the Greek 
document is saying is that not one iota, which is the Greek letter I, and not one keraya, which is the Greek word for a seraph or a stem, like the little curly on the end of a T when you see it in a, in a Word document. Or if you write your capital Bs so that there's a little part sticking out on the left-hand side of the long line, that could be a Greek karaya. It means a stem or a seraph or a little ledge part of your letter. So what is specifically said is not one I and not one tiny stroke of the pen that doesn't really carry value, but we have it there anyway. Uh, None of that will disappear from the law. But lots of stems have already disappeared, haven't they? We don't read the Bible in Hebrew and Greek anymore, do we? So all the, if you want to get really nitpicky, all the iotas have disappeared. All of them, because we have it in English. So it's not talking literally here. It's a figure of speech to mean that God's word is everlasting in the same way that God is eternal. We don't need to be perfect spellers in order to make God's word and God eternal. He already is that, even if we're all dyslexic and horrible spellers, right? So that's that's one example. Another anxiety is about where the Bible specifically names the author of a book, such as saying in Joshua 8 that Joshua wrote down on stones a copy of the Law of Moses. And repeatedly through the Bible, the law and the books of the law are referred to as the Law of Moses. That has made some people believe that Moses wrote every word in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and nobody else added anything, and there were no editors or additional scribes or anything. However, it doesn't say that anywhere, and having editors and additional copyists and scribes, or even as an author it meant you dictate a scribe to somebody, was a common thing in biblical times. In Deuteronomy, it talks about the death of Moses and his burial spot. The easy explanation for how this is a part of the book of the law that Moses was supposed to write is that an editor or a later scribe added that in. I don't see that as a challenge to God's sovereignty or the accuracy of the Bible. But some people, because there is the saying, the law of Moses insist that Moses had to write every single word in those books. But it's just really not necessary to make that have to be true. Paul freely talks about dictating letters to someone else for them to write down. And it is very possible that other biblical authors did the same thing, even if it's not explicitly stated in the text. So one thing that we can end up doing is demanding that all the facts be present in the text, but that's not the case and never has been. Now, I should add, side note, that I do understand why people want to insist on Moses being the only author of Genesis through Deuteronomy. In the last 200 years, there's been a lot of academic theorizing about the authors of different books. Like, is it really Jeremiah that wrote all of Jeremiah? Is it really Hosea? And the reason why they would question it is because a lot of it is due to tradition. That there's no historical evidence of some of these guys. And so they're like, is it really? Um, So it's fact checking, but they take it a little bit too far. And there's a theory that the book of Isaiah had three different authors. 
And normally, <laughs> normally for me, I'm like, I, I don't really mind, you know, um, if people theorize about this stuff and, and try to check on what has been considered just tradition, but we lean very heavily in tradition in some places that we don't always need to. But for this one, this one is actually very important. Um, when it comes to Moses, I don't mind if he has editors and scribes and a separate person that put in extra information later. But with the theory of Isaiah, I do care, and I feel it is much more important. In this case, academic scholars, not necessarily textual critics, mind you. So this is using textual criticism, but this is not the main focus of textual criticism, okay? I want to kind of distance it a little bit. Textual criticism is a tool to use by different kinds of scholars and academics. So academic scholars, not necessarily textual critics, but theologians and other scholars are saying that there must be three authors of Isaiah, not just one, because of the content, because particularly of the prophetic content. They say that in later parts of Isaiah, it talks about Jerusalem being desolate and needing to be rebuilt. And so that clearly the author must have lived at that time period, and that's how he knew about that event. But Isaiah didn't. He lived about 100 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. So it seems like, feels like it was a different author. So what they're doing is saying prophecy can't exist in the Bible, basically. They're saying that if somebody knows about an event, then it must be somebody that lived at that time period. It's doubting the ability for God to put prophecy into the Bible, all right? So there, it's very much undermining prophecy and God's sovereignty and him knowing everything. So when there's chopping up of books and saying there must be other authors, it's sometimes wrong and unnecessary because it's ignoring God's sovereignty. So if you want to say the same thing about those few lines in Deuteronomy about Moses' death, saying it's prophecy, Moses put it in there, God had him put it in there, that's fine with me. I'm, I'm okay with that. We can agree to disagree on that. And I won't think of you as uninformed. But I think it's also okay to say there might have been a scribe or Joshua adding that in after Moses died. And I don't think that defies God's sovereignty. I think it makes him kind to not make Moses write about his own death. So when I had to, I went back and I rethought about the things that I was going to say in this episode, that was the only thing I could think of that made me feel suspicious and doubtful towards textual criticism. That sometimes people can use it as a weapon to try and undermine the spirituality and divine nature of the Bible. We don't need to do that with it. And that is not what textual criticism is really about, though it's often confused with it. Okay, so I wanted to recognize that that happens, that sometimes they will use textual criticism to ignore or undermine God's sovereignty, but that is not the majority of what happens with textual criticism. Okay, so the next part, moving on, is related uh, but a little bit different. Another fear involves challenging the sovereignty of God in regards to content. If we think that human authors, writers, editors, and copyists had a will of their own, a mind of their own, 
and use their own hands and minds and ink and paper to write and copy the Bible, we start to think that maybe then they put in their own ideas as well. And so we start to wonder, where does the agency of man, the activity and involvement of man start, and the sovereignty of God stop? One basic answer for this is to reassure you that nowhere in the entire Bible is there a text-critical issue that challenges, changes, or obscures an issue of doctrine. That means out of all the thousands, and there are thousands of places where documents are different, that manuscripts are different from each other, with spelling or changing a phrase based on connotation, like how we see in Genesis 18.22, there is literally no place in any of the thousands of manuscripts that we have where there is a change that changes a doctrine or belief about God. Nothing. Nothing to even try to confuse the issue. Nothing touches on the beliefs and doctrines about God and the Bible. Nothing. That means that all the small spelling issues and small changes or additions that we find, and we'll talk about some of them, some specific ones in the next two episodes, none of those things change or affect how we view God or what we believe about him and his relationship to us. So I think it's incredibly reassuring to look. So before I even started to prep for recording this episode, I was like, oh man, I don't remember. (laughs) I don't remember the issues and it feels overwhelming because how do you defend a book that says it is perfect and is everlasting, but there are changes? And, uh, And I was getting confused in my head. Like, I don't know how to defend this. And then I looked back at my textual criticism book that I had, and this is what it said. It was like, look, there's no doctrine or belief issue in the entire Bible because of textual criticism. That means that all the things that we imagine could go wrong, (laughs) none of them did. It's just spelling and editing and proofreading problems that, if anything, should be really encouraging to us that we can have professionals that dedicate their lives to trying to poke holes in the Bible, and all they come up with is spelling problems. I think that's pretty good, especially since this book has been around for 3,500 years. That's a long time to have any document and find (laughs) there's nothing wrong with it. I really don't mind if the Bible has spelling issues once in a while. I'm sure you've found some in your English Bible, and you're like, aha, (laughs) it's not perfect. That's right. Zero copies, zero manuscripts are 100% perfect because they're made by man. God inspired the Bible. It is his concepts that are in the Bible, but he employed imperfect people to write it down. And I think he's okay with those smelling problems. You know what I'm saying? I don't think God is up there really upset that we ruined his perfect word. All right, so I'm going to stop there. I hope that was encouraging. I hope you trust the Bible even more, knowing that there's a whole profession dedicated to trying to figure out problems with the Bible and all we can come up with is spelling problems, okay? 
So I hope you guys have a great day. We will talk about this stuff again in the next two episodes. The next one is going to be really interesting. It's about a textual criticism issue that came up in the news. Um, And then the following one will be even closer to home for Bible readers. Um, But it'll be good. And I think we'll enjoy it. So you guys take care and I'll see you again next time. Bye. Bye.